You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Let's look at the student loan debt, which is absolutely staggering. In my view, you can't spend enough on infrastructure. Given the size of fiscal stimulus we've already seen, this seems like a drop in the bucket. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Live from Washington, welcome as oil prices permeate the conversation at the White House after the OPEC meeting fell apart over the weekend. What happens now to supplies and prices? And can the White House actually make a difference? We'll be joined shortly by Washington correspondent Anne-Marie Horder and an energy expert, Dan Jurgen from IHS Market. Oil prices actually lost ground today. After the OPEC meeting fell apart in the middle of a very confusing weekend for investors, Bloomberg Washington correspondent Anne-Marie Hordern is with us, having covered OPEC and the oil patch for years before being here in the Beltway now. What a confluence. It's great to have your expertise, Anne-Marie. Good to see you. Thanks. How could this have gone so wrong? You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Well, OPEC right now is uh, dealing with uh, a member that wants to produce more than they are currently allotted. Mm -hmm. And they agree to one part of the deal, but not the full one. But for the agreement to be fully implemented, everyone needs to sign up. And that's what you have right now. The UAE is willing to sign up for this deal. So we don't even have a date for a next meeting. Yeah. So right now we are just on edge waiting to see what happens next. How unusual is this for the whole thing just to go poof? We didn't even reschedule. Well, given that last year there was an all-out price war and then we had WTI going into negative, it's not that this is unexpected, that this couldn't happen, mm -hmm. um, but certainly no one was expecting this meeting, I think, to go so sour because the market right now is in deficit. So what is so worrisome is that for August, they were going to be producing another 400,000 barrels a day. Without that agreement, that supply would not be coming onto the market. Also, the UAE has done this before. December 2020, they had threatened to leave the group. So we have been down this road somewhat in the past with members here and there. Yeah. You spoke with the Saudi energy minister over the holiday weekend, made a big splash, and you cut right to the chase. 
Will you continue to increase by 400,000 barrels a day without the UAE on board? We cannot. Because it's an agreement that is done by consensus. Okay, what would happen if the Saudis did pump more? If the Saudis did pump more, what you would see is just prices come down. And actually, we are seeing prices come down now. Initially, you saw that spike with an agreement not happening, yeah. a date not even on the calendar. But within OPEC, would there be some major divorce? I mean, what would what would happen to Saudi Arabia as a member? There would just be a price war. If Saudi's going to pump more, Moscow's going to pump more, Baghdad's going to pump more, Abu Dhabi's going to pump more. Bottom. Exactly. The White House has indicated uh, that the administration is getting involved. So does the U.S. have any say in this, though? They do have influence in Abu Dhabi and in Riyadh. Even this week, we have the Saudi Deputy Defense Minister, Khalid bin Salman, who's very close to the crown prince. He also was the former ambassador to Washington in town. Potentially, you could see some kind of oil chats on the sidelines. Mm -hmm. Um, But we do know from Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, that high-level officials are in contact with relevant capitals around the world, a la Abu Dhabi and Riyadh. Bloomberg Washington correspondent Anne-Marie Hordern, we thank you very much for the insights. Let's bring in energy expert Dan Jurgen, vice chairman of IHS Market and author of The New Map, Energy, Climate and the Clash of Nations. Dan, welcome back to Bloomberg Radio. It's great to have you. Thank you. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki was asked about any potential White House involvement today during the briefing. Here's what she said. We are um, engaged directly with them to hear updates on the conversations that are happening between the OPEC members. Um, I can see, uh, of course, and we are constantly monitoring the price of uh, gas uh, in this country. And we know the impact of oil prices around the world is having a direct impact on that. What's your take on Washington being involved here, Dan? Is that real, and does the White House have real influence? Well, I know that the uh, White House has reached out to the countries in the region, but it's it's more broadly than that. It's, as your reporter said, you know, Joe Biden has been around Washington for about a half a century mm-hmm. and knows that one thing that's a really a big political problem is when gasoline prices go up, and gasoline prices have been going up, because as the oil price goes up, and the concern was if they go up more. So they've been weighing in. The other country that's been really weighing in and is a lot more important than it was a few years ago is India, because both Saudi Arabia and Abu Dhabi are making major investments there. They regard it as a growth market. India imports 85 percent of its oil. And so oil prices going up are a real problem for them. And so the Indians have also been particularly vocal about oil prices for the same reasons. I'd love to hear your take on prices, why we pulled back today, if that was simply technical, because a lot of people are betting on $100 a barrel, Dan. Well, I think $100 a barrel was on the notion that uh, OPEC plus would follow the market. There's still 5.8 million barrels or 6 million barrels roughly sitting on on the sidelines. There's a question of when Iran comes back. So prices could be you know, they could have gotten to 100 if they're driven by sort of basically by the financial markets, not by supply and demand. But uh, I think at least some number of the auto, uh, oil uh, countries, oil exporters know that $100 oil is bad news for them because what it will really fuel is electric cars. Mm-hmm. And also, in particular, one of those big players, uh, Russia, is really concerned about a resurgence in U.S. shale and U.S. shale coming back and taking market share. And they've been the one who's been most reluctant about higher prices. I'd like to ask you about that. I spoke with Congressman Kevin Brady about it last week from Texas, of course. And 
I said, you know, is it time to uh, start drilling in the shale again at $70, maybe 100 He said yes and yes and yes. I, I wonder if you think shale drillers will, in fact, get busy if oil prices hold above $70 a barrel. I, I talked today to a, a, a smaller independent yesterday, and he's doubling the number of rigs. I think the privates, if we can call it that, the private mm-hmm. equity-backed companies and so are increasing. I think that the larger independents who have the bulk of it, uh, as well as the majors, Exxon and Chevron and the other majors, are much more focused on on capital discipline. It's I call it the second shale revolution, which is a revolution in relations with investors returning money. So they're continuing to be pretty disciplined. But we do think that this year we'll see uh, shale going up a couple hundred thousand barrels a day, U.S. oil production. And next year it could, you know, if prices remain 65 or so above that, we could see another three, four hundred thousand barrels a day of U.S. coming back next year, not the million or two million barrels a day that was happening a few years ago. You mentioned Iran, uh, Dan. That's the wild card here. If if Iran changes the supply picture, though, prices drop, could these shale producers be left holding the bag again? Well, I think that's part of the reluctance is, that, you know, do these prices really hold? Because people can see that oil and the administration continues to pursue its uh, negotiations with Iran, which sometimes seem like they're going to get somewhere, sometimes don't. There's a new government in Iran, but Iran could bring oil into the market. But, you know, it's not massive volumes. They might bring over time a million, a million and a half barrels. That's what we're talking about. And what's underlying this whole uh, dispute within an OPEC plus, or really it's an OPEC, is that, you know, we're moving into this post-COVID recovery, uh, this post-COVID economy, and uh, demand is is going up. You know, just look what's happened with air travel in the U.S. It's come back much more strongly than expected, and that means jet fuel is coming back much more strongly. The market needs uh, needs oil. We're talking with Dan Jurgen, vice chair of IHS Market. Indeed, I'd like to ask you about the demand side a little bit more. We hear so much, Dan, about the reopening that we're getting on airplanes, we're getting on buses and cars, save some big outbreak in the fall. I can only assume that continues. You add business travel, you add international travel. Do you not see yes. demand continuing to rise through the year? Yes. Yes, uh, we had at our Sear Week conference this year, we had the CEO of uh, United Airlines, Scott Kirby. And at that point, he said business travel is going to come back sooner than people think. And, you know, people are skeptical about it. But I think we're, you know, we're seeing that travel coming back. And, in, you know, in our own numbers, we show U.S. Uh, economy growing at 7.4 percent, world economy at 6 percent. I mean, this is really quite a rebound when you think that last year GDP went down, global GDP by about 3.5%, comes back this year at 6%. Even with what we're seeing in um, you know, India and other parts of the world, the UK opens up, I think, on July 17th. Uh, so I think you know, demand is strong. We're, you know, we're going to get back to the, uh, the world economy. Well, the US economy is already as, at a higher level than it was in, uh, in 2019. World economy around now will be bigger than it was in 2019. So we're in this post-COVID economy, even with uh, the, you know, the, 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 the disease still affecting parts of the world severely. So then you add the transition to renewables, to electric vehicles that will require fossil fuels, 
to not only manufacture them, but to charge them. And we have elevated well, prices, right? That's the thesis to, to get above 70 towards 100. Yeah. And, well, note that electric cars are also about 20 percent plastic, which mm. is made from oil and gas. So, And, you know, the, the minerals that you need for those cars have to be mined, and those are diesel uh, uh, tractors and things. And So it all adds but, up to expensive oil, Dan. Yeah. So, But I think, you know, I think that if you're in, sitting in Abu Dhabi or you're sitting in Riyadh, you don't you know that $100 oil is not going to be good for uh, the future market for oil, and you don't want to see that. Fair enough. Dan Jurgen, Vice Chair, IHS Market. Thanks for all your insights today. Coming up, we'll turn to the other big issue at the White House today, COVID, a new White House effort to vaccinate the holdouts. We'll talk about it next with Jody Schneider. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for spending part of your Tuesday with us on Bloomberg Radio. We are live from Washington, where it actually felt kind of normal over the weekend. We even had people gathering on the mall for a big fireworks show. We were lined up on the highways, too. And while the White House did not hit its vaccination goal in time for the 4th of July, President Biden today says... We are almost there. We will have 160 million fully vaccinated Americans, up uh, from roughly 3 million when we took office five months ago. We see why it matters. COVID-19 cases and deaths are down by 90 percent since January. The president speaking from the White House a short time ago, and so the hard part begins. Now we need to go to community by community, neighborhood by neighborhood, and oft times door to door, literally knocking on doors to get help to the remaining people protected from the virus. Door to door, he says, literally knocking on doors. There will be mobile units added to the effort as well. And more doses will go to doctors and pediatricians to help vaccinate the unvaccinated. Joining us to talk about it all, Bloomberg Political News Director Jody Schneider. Hey, Jody, thanks for being here. Yeah, hi. Jody spent many uh, months, months and months and months, I was going to say years, it felt like it, covering yes. COVID for Bloomberg here. Uh, the White House is trying to get over the hump here, uh, Jody. Obviously, they probably wish they hadn't set that goal quite the way they did. They'll hit the goal at the end of the week. But indeed, this second phase, if we can even call it that, of the vaccination efforts, is going to be a lot more difficult than the first one. If we're talking about knocking on doors, who are they trying to reach? Yeah, this is really going to be um, much tougher in terms of getting those numbers up, Joe, as you're saying. Uh, right now, according to our uh, Bloomberg vaccine tracker, about half the U.S. population uh, who is eligible, so you know those um, who are 12 and older, um, have been fully vaccinated, which is a good number when you compare it to a lot of countries. Yeah. But people like Dr. Anthony Fauci is saying, uh, you have to get to 70 to 85 percent of the U.S. population to really enable a return to normalcy when, you know, you're not going to have to worry about things like these variants. So we are a ways off. And uh, it has already been, uh, you know, the vaccine's widely available. Uh, if you want it, you can go get it. It's free. You know, all those, uh, any barriers that there used to be to getting it in those early months, you know, complicated yeah. sign-ups on the computer, that kind of thing, all that's gone. 
Uh, so now it's really getting, you know, going out there and trying to convince people who, for whatever reason, are resistant to getting the vaccine to do so. And of course, as you note, that's much more complicated than just making it available and just making it free. Well, that's right. I mean, it's like another life when you think about people trying to buy their way, lie their way into vaccination clinics, would, would do anything to get a shot. When we talk about the unvaccinated, though, it looks, Jody, like we have kind of two different types of people, those who are, are hesitant for political reasons, maybe they don't believe in vaccines, but also then young people who weren't actually approved for vaccines as early as as their parents. And in many cases, parents were worried about, you know, bringing their youngest to be first in line. I wonder if the White House will find an opportunity here to talk to parents who, who were vaccinated themselves but haven't brought their kids back yet. And of course, school is a good reason to do that. That's right. And, and getting teenagers vaccinated is really part of the goal and the, and the next big step. If they can do that, first of all, that brings up those numbers much more and also uh, really, uh, you know, decreases those potential what we call unvaccinated pockets of people. And with school coming on, you really don't want to see unvaccinated pockets where people are getting sick. You can still have breakthrough uh, infections with the vaccine, but the rate of hospitalization and death from those breakthrough infections is extremely low. Yeah. And that's what the White House is pushing. You start talking about pockets, Jody. Uh, the president today referred to surge, COVID surge response teams. They are being assembled now as the White House prepares to deal with the outbreaks that the president promised today are coming. We're mobilizing what I'm calling COVID-19 surge response teams. These teams are made up of experts from FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, CDC, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, and elsewhere across our government, other groups. And they're going to help states that have particular problems prevent, detect, and respond to the spread of the Delta variant among unvaccinated people in communities with low vaccination rates. How's that going to work, Jody Schneider? Are we talking about shutting down communities? How do you manage an outbreak without the types of mandates that we saw actually close businesses last year? Yeah, and that's, again, going to be tricky because we're talking, in a sense, about two Americas here, right? The, uh, you know, cities and states where there's a very high vaccination rates, where you're seeing very low numbers of, you know, these hospitalizations and deaths. And yeah. then in other parts of the country. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. 
they're very susceptible to that, especially with these uh, variants like this Delta variant, which has really proven uh, to be, you know, causing a lot of spread among people who are not vaccinated. And of course, they're concerned about other potential variants that could be coming in. We've seen several now in just the last few months. So getting to these communities and trying to uh, really stem these infections before they get out of control is what they're talking about. How you do that when it's, you know, one community and the next community might be vaccinated is really an interesting uh, test case. I don't think they're talking about, I don't think anybody's talking about shutdowns like we saw perhaps in China, but perhaps other steps to try to deal with this. We're going to find out together in real time with Bloomberg Political News Director Jody Schneider. Thank you, Jody. Coming up, is it safe to invest in China? Many wondering after the government crackdown on tech. Today it was Didi. Talk about it with Bloomberg's Tom Orlick next. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. China is at it again, spooking investors with a vow to tighten oversight of data security and overseas stock listings. That's, of course, just days after Didi went public here in the U.S., and that was followed by China's probe into the company, its decision eventually to pull Didi's app from stores, the stock down sharply. So I was drawn to the story on the terminal, the headline, When Will China Rule the World? Maybe Never. Maybe Never. Great to be here, Joe. The second part of your headline is what's getting a lot of attention because on days like this, well, it seemed inevitable to people that China will rule the world. This is a government that seems to do whatever it wants in regulating corporate behavior. So why wouldn't it? China's a big place, Joe. 1.4 billion people. And China has access to broadly the same set of technologies and the same markets as the United States. So on one level, it does seem obvious that Xi Jinping will have his way and China will rise to be the biggest economy in the world. Mm -hmm. There's also some uncertainties, and that's, the, that's what we wanted to highlight in this piece. China's working age population is shrinking. There'll be 260 million less working age Chinese people in 2050 than there are today. China is increasingly isolated in the world economy, more difficult for them to absorb ideas and technologies from the US and Europe and elsewhere. And China's taken on a huge amount of debt, raising the risk of financial crisis. Mm -hmm. So it's reasonable to assume that China will continue to rise, but it's not as inevitable as Beijing leaders would have us believe. And I suspect, you know, a, a headline like DD Today, or what we saw China do to Alibaba, a couple of months ago kind of steals our attention maybe from some of the bigger picture issues that you're describing. The, the news of the day makes it seem like China is going to run all day long rewriting the rules as it's going. So the Didi and Alibaba news, Joe, um, I actually take a slightly contrarian view on that. Hmm. Um, the kind of the, the straightforward interpretation is this is the communists versus the entrepreneurs, yeah, right? Yeah. China doesn't like private business. The Communist Party can't stand any challenges to their authority. Well, maybe that's right. But I think if we look around the world, we can see governments everywhere in China, in Europe and the United States increasingly concerned about the power of big tech 
concerned about monopoly, concerned about surveillance, mm -hmm. concerned about the huge power which these companies, which have so much data, are starting to amass. So maybe China is just moving earlier and more aggressively ag against the monopoly power of big tech than governments elsewhere in the world. Well, that's a that's an interesting thought. Some people say it's just a matter of companies that want to list in the U.S., right? If you become Alibaba or Didi, you're making headlines on Bloomberg. China's coming after you. So um, there's a U.S. listing aspect to it, um, but I'm not sure that's the primary dimension. Ant Financial was not planning to list in the United States. Ant Financial was listing much closer to home. Ant Financial, of course, is the, uh, the financial arm of Alibaba, Jack Ma's empire. Mm -hmm. That didn't prove any protection for them. Yeah. I woke up to Tom Keene, though, asking this morning on surveillance, is it safe to invest in China? And that's something that individual investors are asking. It's something that institutional pensions are asking. Is there an answer? Investing in China, like investing anywhere else in the world, comes with risks and opportunities attached to it. In the United States, you have a government which is wedded to transparency in the regulatory process. Some would say that that is a weakness as well as a strength, that the desire to give businesses transparency and predictability has tilted the playing field too far in terms of big corporations and against workers, for example. In China, the government doesn't feel constrained in the same way. And that's why you can see these big surprise moves, the move to um, put Ant Financial's IPO on ice, the move against Didi. The direction, I think, is the same in the US and in China, there's growing concern about the power of big tech. Mm -hmm. The pace at which the Chinese government moves and the surprise that that can engender in the markets and for investors is much bigger. If this were not a tech company, then maybe we let's put DD and Alibaba aside. Let's say it's a you know a, a major a Chinese industrial, earth-moving uh, company. Is it the same story? So. China moves aggressively when it wants to across sectors. Um, I left China back in 2018. Um, at that time, the two big policy drives were the supply-side reform agenda and the deleveraging agenda. On the supply-side reform agenda, that was the government's attempts to deal with overcapacity in industry. We saw a wave of forced mergers, a wave of forced bankruptcies amongst big industrial firms. These came as surprises in many cases to the managers, in many cases to the managers, to the workers, to the investors. Now we're seeing a similar trend in big tech. And it goes around. As we spend time with Bloomberg's Tom Orlick talking about his great piece, When Will China Rule the World? Maybe never. How about growth, Tom, you point out that there are widespread doubts about China's official economic data. We don't really know how fast China's growing. So the market is deeply skeptical about China's growth data. And China's own leaders have given reason for skepticism. Premier Li Keqiang, earlier in his career, when he was the chief of a province up in northeast China, he told the US ambassador that China's GDP data was, quote, man-made, 
and for reference only. So deep doubts about the reliability of the official data. And of course, this plays into the US-China economic race. If China's real level of output is actually lower than what the official data suggests, then China is further behind in the economic race and catching up less quickly than Beijing would have us believe. Bloomberg Chief Economist Tom Orlick speaking with us on Bloomberg Radio. We're learning more about a massive ransomware attack that impacted over a thousand businesses over the weekend. That's next. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Live from Washington, thanks for joining us as we trace or we try to trace the source of the latest ransomware attack here. They just keep on coming. But was it Russia this time? President Biden told reporters to wait the weekend as they took a deep dive on what happened. We know more than a thousand businesses were impacted. This was the only question, in fact, the president took after he talked about COVID today. It was on this. I can tell you a couple things. I received an update from our national security team this morning. It appears to have caused minimal damage to U.S. businesses, but we're still gathering information to the full extent of the attack, and I'm going to have more to say about this in the next several days. We're getting more detail and information, but that's what I can tell you now, and uh, I feel good about uh, our ability to uh, to respond. Our ability to respond, he said. Sources telling Bloomberg News today the hackers were part of a group known as Cozy Bear, which had already been tied to Russia's Foreign Intelligence Service. We're joined to talk about it by Rick Jordan, the founder and CEO of ReachOut Technology, a firm that specializes in cybersecurity. Rick, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me on. Let's what do you know about this. Cozy Bear? Is this different than Ravel? It's starting to get difficult to follow these underground groups, Rick. Who did it? The names are definitely more like band names than they are hacker names, right? Yeah, that's for and sure. What we're <laughs> what we're seeing is the thing that's really alarming is Cozy Bear first attacked solar winds towards the end of last year, 2020. And that was one of the big hacks that then infiltrated the US government because solar winds was the software that managed a lot of those systems. Kaseya, the hack that we saw over the weekend was a similar piece of software, actually one that even my firm uses to where that's used to manage end clients networks and employ security policies. So both of these are considered what we call supply chain attacks. Mm-hmm. So if you think of the top of the pyramid, you've got Kaseya and solar winds up at the top, then they affect everything below those when they're infected. So when you look at these names, the thing that's alarming is that these tactics are very similar from a strategy perspective. Cozy Bear is definitively linked to Russian nation states. Revel, not, it's just kind of assumed right now that they are. It's possible. But the, the methods are so similar, and that's what's concerning. So what does that say about our ability to stop them if they keep breaking in using the same method? Yeah, we need a a dedicated and definitive response from the administration, from the Biden administration for this, not something that soft pedals at this point. And I realize that's opinion because I feel that we're going to continue to see these things happen because these types of methods used to be only reserved for nation states, these sophisticated methods. But now you're seeing e-criminal groups like Rebel. They are definitively just an e-criminal group from what we can tell right now using those same tactics. So it's almost like the amateurs are now becoming on the same level as the professionals. Wow. So the best thing to do, and this is the state of my industry, which is very fragmented right now, is there's 142,000-ish MSPs 
that are across the United States. And there's not many that actually really understand what's going on and even employ the same security tactics for themselves that they do for their clients. That's why the Kaseya hack was so big. You're making me a little more scared than I was already here, Rick. The, the president just had, well, you heard the, the remarks, nothing terribly specific. Does the White House, based on what you understand, have the ability to learn enough to respond? I believe so. And CISA, you know, as long as the agencies, our intelligence agencies work in concert, you know, even when I was in the White House last year, speaking with those agencies in concert, it was very interesting to see that each one had just the, the genuine goal to move our country forward and protect our borders from even just a cybersecurity perspective. And that's what we need to see now. But we need a coordinated effort and direction directly from the top from POTUS on this in order to keep these moving in the right direction. So, yes, they do. But we need more definitive action. You probably heard the president speak about this of your line of work uh, when he was overseas uh, for the G7. And he said, you know, talked about our ability to respond and, and respond with force. Do you have a sense of what that is? I know we have played with this. Uh, you could ask Iran, I suspect, about our ability uh, to interfere with their nuclear program. But if we were going to go up against Russia, what are we talking about here? Turn the lights out, cut off the Internet for everybody. What are we capable of doing that would really make an impact? This is a that's a great question, Joe. This area is so new right now because you figure the scare years ago, decades ago, was nuclear warfare, right? This is that new sort of World War Three, in my opinion, is cyber warfare because there's no human lives directly lost. You know, so for a response, there's a lot that's available. And keep in mind that the the previous administration, they were the ones that actually established the offensive division of our cybersecurity division within our intelligence agencies just a few years ago. So we're ramping up quickly, but this is something that I feel that we need to just, again, have a clear directive from the White House to the Russian government to say, this is not tolerated anymore. There's no list of do's and don'ts. It's just nothing is tolerated. That's the stance we need to take, and then we can prove it from there on. Seems like it might be a good time to show the world what we are capable of, right? I mean, I don't, I don't mean to be some new age internet hawk or whatever the heck that would be, but my gosh, we've been talking around this a long time, Rick. For sure, and uh, you know, from my perspective, you know, from a cybersecurity perspective, and, and serving small and medium enterprises, you know, that do about a hundred million in revenue or below, I see this affect lives and put people on the sidelines, make them homeless because they lose so much money because their business is taken out for that long. Wow. So even with the Kaseya hack only affecting, you know, quote unquote, fifteen hundred businesses, those are small mom and pop shops. This is their livelihood. That's what our president is in place to protect. That part of the American dream, and that's where he needs to step up. We're talking on Bloomberg Sound On with Rick Jordan, the founder CEO of Reach Out Technology, following the latest hack and what appears to be a pretty broad ransomware attack. This is all happening on the same day here, Rick, that we got word from the Pentagon canceling this uh, rather controversial deal known as Jedi, right? This was something that was uh, awarded to Microsoft some time ago, the Joint Warfighting Cloud Capability Contract the Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure, JEDI. It sounds cool. Now it looks like Microsoft and Amazon are going to share this. This is cloud capability. This is cloud security for probably the most important client in the country, right? That's the Pentagon. Do these companies have the ability to secure the Defense Department? 
Microsoft and Amazon, I do believe, have that ability. I'm fully, <laughs> I'm fully behind their capabilities to be able to do something like that. One, because they are giants and they have the funding to do that. That's probably the biggest difference between the clients that my firm serve and the big boys, big tech like Microsoft and Amazon, is they have the money to throw at it. Okay. You know, I think while it's a, it's a good move, and this is speaking strictly from a strategy perspective, I think it's a good move to split the contract between Microsoft and Amazon. That way there's redundancies in place. So if one is compromised, the other one can still carry out the mission. How about so I'm that? I'm sure you're tracking with me on that. Yeah, but the, the problem is that it almost seems like it's undermining now because it's several years later at this point from when this whole plan came about and we're already that far behind. So if we're going to split it, which we are, the pace needs to accelerate to get this accomplished. And there's nothing more worth proving that than the past couple of days with these recent attacks. Yeah. The Pentagon said it decided to cancel the contract, quote, due to evolving requirements, increased cloud conservancy, and industry advances. It sure makes me wonder what they know, Rick. <laughs> yeah, that's a, lot of, that's a lot of fancy tech talk, right? <laughs> and with those, they're pretty much saying that at this point, I would, my opinion, again, would be just for redundancy purposes, that's a good move. But still, the pace needs to be stepped up in order to combat these things head on. Well, so is the quest for cybersecurity, in the end, uh, going to ensure that only major companies can survive in this market? That's, uh, I hope not, for real. Because in my industry, the managed service providers, we're the ones that service those small and medium enterprises of that $100 million or less, you know, the mom and pop shops, the places where most Americans work. You know, those things, a lot of managed service providers don't necessarily have the competencies to do that, but that's why I'm doing what I'm doing in order to try to bridge that gap. And as we see time go on within the next couple of months to the soonest the year, the next couple of years, I hope so, that we can make that technology available to every single American business. Well, just lastly, Rick, whether it's a, you know, a massive uh, company or not, how are you keeping up with this? If the threat is continuing to change, you know the old line with terrorism, they only need to be right once, you need to be right all the time. Yeah, the, the, the brutal truth, and I'm just going to give this to you, there is not anything as a 100% secure network. That's something that we always tell our clients. It's something when I speak on stages across the U.S. that I tell other managed service providers is don't ever guarantee that. The biggest part that you need to worry about is the response plan. So when Kaseya got hacked this weekend, the response plan was amazing. I was super impressed by it on the way that they contained the hack, you know, because you have to run under the assumption now, even with the RNC, with this latest hack, right, with Cozy Bear, they should have been running on the, under the assumption that at some point they will be hacked. So what's our response plan going to be to get us back up and running as quickly as possible? It's not as so much about the prevention only anymore. It's about how we respond after the inevitable breach happens. The inevitable breach, the words of a founder and CEO of a cyber technology company, Cybersecurity. That would be Reach Out Technology, and he would be Rick Jordan. Rick, many thanks for the time today on Bloomberg Radio. Thank you. Learn a lot, actually. We needed that. As we learn as well that the RNC, the Republican National Committee, is denying that it was hacked. You might have heard reports that it was. The RNC out with a statement, quote, Russian intelligence hackers are taking advantage of the chaos created by the global ransomware campaign to attack valuable intelligence targets. The ransomware attack, as we mentioned, may have hit more than a thousand different organizations. Stay with us as we learn more about the RNC and join us back here tomorrow for the Wednesday edition of Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg.
You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.